Wonderful Passover week we celebrated, uh, starting with Palm Sunday and a Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And uh, I don't know about you, but on Monday I was a little weary. <laughs> I had a, such a great time, though, uh, meeting a lot of people. I had a funeral on Saturday before Easter and met a lot of people that I, for the first time, you know, at the funeral. And I believe some who were unsaved and uh, had a chance to share the gospel, and that's always a, a positive experience. Hey, Scott, it sounds really hollow in my ear, like it's, uh, I don't know, real reverb or not reverb, but echoey. Thank you. You're working on it? Yeah, okay, good. So anyway, uh, let me welcome the live stream audience that have joined us as well. Good to have you. Uh, I spoke with Charlotte. She's been watching on, online for a long time, and she's here back tonight for the first time. So we see people coming back that way who have been on live stream for the longest period of time, and we're thankful for that. Good to have all of you back this evening. Take your Bible out and turn to 1 Kings. We're going to continue in our study. We're at chapter 4, and uh, a study of the kings. And of course, we're now studying, we've studied Saul, we've studied David, and uh, last week we really started to open up and learn about Solomon in his reign, and tonight we'll do even more, we'll see, we'll go a little further, and uh, one of the things we learn right out of the gate this evening is we see the wisdom of Solomon on display. Now, there are two kinds of wisdom. There is godly wisdom that we can walk in. And only by the Holy Spirit can we apply godly wisdom. And then there's human wisdom. And on the surface, both look to be very, you know, good. Uh, but we need to be careful with human wisdom. And so tonight at the close, I want to take us for a moment over into Ecclesiastes, where we actually hear from the horse's mouth. Uh, Solomon is going to tell us, the, 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 the follies or, the, or the, um, just the downside of wisdom, human wisdom. And, but we're, we're going to learn this evening here about Solomon's godly wisdom also. So let's get started with prayer. Father, this evening we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and for your uh, work in our lives and through our lives into the lives of others. And it just follows scripture that way, that we are called to be ministers, we are called to serve you, we are called to give our lives to you, to surrender our lives. And so, Lord, serving you doesn't always, it's not just re referring to how we serve in the local church. That also refers to how we obey the Holy Spirit every day of the week. And we bring the gospel as salt and light to a lost world. And I pray tonight, Lord, for the influences in our lives. Each of us has a sphere of influence, and I pray that of those in our lives that do not know Christ, that this week, even before the weekend, we would have opportunities to, to just present Christ, to, to show them Christ, to speak of Christ to those, those of influence in our lives. And we give you thanks and praise that tonight we can learn even from the Old Testament, we can learn so much that's practical and applicable to, to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, again, in this chapter, we continue to see the wisdom of Solomon on display. Remember, we, we saw Solomon address the, the matter between the two women who one woman lost her baby 
She actually probably rolled over on her baby and smothered the child in the night. She woke up in the morning, the child was dead. So she went and took the child another woman had given birth and took that child in her bed. And then when that woman woke up, there was a dead child in her bed. And so they came, that case came before Solomon, which says something about Solomon in the early days, that he would even adjudicate a case of two women. By the way, these two women were women of the night. And yet Solomon took the case. He was willing to try to help them. And of course, uh, they were arguing over who, you know, the, he sh the she, she, she said, she said situation. And, and, uh, and he finally uh, said, let's take the child and let's cut the baby in half, the living child. You'll get half, you'll get half. Because they wouldn't come, honesty was not coming out. And so obviously, immediately, the true mother said, no, do not harm the child, let her have the child. She did not want that child to be his life for her life to be taken. And that's when Solomon knew that's the mother. And so great wisdom. Great wisdom. Now, uh, I'm not sure they have anything Solomon had anything on Matlock. Those of you who watched Matlock, you know, and the wisdom of Matlock and his <laughs> legal matters. And my grandmother, she swore up and down that Matlock was the the greatest attorney that's ever lived. It's amazing what Hollywood can produce, right? <laughs> there you go. So, um, so let's take a look at verse 1. King Solomon was ki king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Uh, so what we're going to learn is that Solomon used great wisdom in the selection, the training, the empowerment of leaders who would serve in his government. So it says, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Ahilareth and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. That would have been like secretary of state in a sense. Not exactly the same, but in that sense. Uh, Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, Ahiliad, was recorder. <clears throat> uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and, kings, and the king's friend. Uh, Ahishar was in charge of the palace. Adoniram was the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Now, those are the leaders that Solomon had on his council, in his council. Now, one thing about a wise leader, no wise leader does it all themselves, right? The best leaders are people who know what needs to be done, they lay a plan, and then they bring people into that plan who can carry it out. They recruit, they train, and then they empower, they release the person to do the job. Uh, a great leader knows, I'm only as good as those who work with me. So you want to put people in your on your team who can do things better than you can do. No leader knows everything. No leader is the best at everything. Every leader has weaknesses, some that are glaring. And so a wise leader will not try to function out of his weakness or her weakness. A wise leader will lean upon others who are strong where they're weak. 
I believe that Solomon walked in that kind of, of understanding of leadership. He practiced it, okay? There are people who, who for whatever reason, and there's numerous reasons for it, leaders who have to do everything, or they have to have their hand in everything. So they might recruit you to help them with this part of the, the ministry of the church. And you get started, and every time you turn around, they're sticking their nose in. Okay, now, what, what are you doing, and why, why are you doing that? What are you doing? Why, why are you doing that? And they just frustrate you. And here you're a leader, and leaders don't work well with people who want to have their hand in everything. And that's not a good leadership. One of the reasons that people get like that, though, and that they end up doing it all themselves, uh, one reason could be that they're just, they have a controlling attitude, you know, a controlling personality. I've got to have my hand on it. Another reason is uh, because people need to be needed. And so they live, they thrive on the praises that other people give them. I pastored in South Florida, and uh, when I was down in Palm Beach Gardens, uh, it was evident to me as an associate pastor that the prior senior pastor, who I did not work with, but was a godly, godly man. But every leader has weakness. Every leader, right? And so I noticed that as I would talk with the people in the church, visitation and whatever, I noticed that nobody could do it quite like he did it. And he was wonderful. And he would come to my home and he would stay a half a day and just sit with me and talk. And I'm thinking, how did this guy get anything done? And the reality is, I mean, he even changed the oil in the cars for the widows he would go and help people, you know, put up a fence in their backyard. I mean, he spent all of his time doing, 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 and the people loved him. And they told him how much they loved him constantly. They were happy to have him do it. And he needed the kudos. He lived off of that. That was what gave him the drive to keep going. Some leaders need to be needed. Now, maybe you're that way. And so for you, you've got to guard against that. You've got to realize in the church, God has raised... Look, a pastor of a church is simply to empower others to do the ministry. It is not about all the ministry that he or she, whoever is a Sunday school teacher, whoever... Whatever we're talking about here, leadership-wise, it's not all that you can do. It's how well do you allow others to get involved and let them do it. You kind of stay back in the back. You don't want to get in the way. So a good leader will empower and then encourage. And a lot of times, cheerlead. There's nothing more fun as a leader, I can say this out of my own experience, the greatest joy is when uh, we've empowered someone to serve in an area and they just take it beyond what I could ever do or even what the staff can do. I'm talking lay people, people who aren't paid by the church, and they take it and run with it. 
and I get to hold the ladder so they can climb up and cut down the net after the championship. That's the joy of leadership, is to see others excel. And isn't that what the scripture tells us? What Solomon is going to, we're going to learn is practicing is exactly what scripture teaches. Now take your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll quickly look at this. Ephesians 4. Brother Ron, did you get that for me? I just, I just saw that there, man. See, that's, that, what a blessing. That's city water. <laughs> he said that's city water. <laughs> Amen. All right. So Ephesians 4, verse 11. Let's see what it says here. And he gave, who, see the he, the pronoun, capital H, that would be Christ. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. By the way, a lot of people in the charismatic community would say that's called the fivefold ministry. I respectfully and very humbly disagree with that. It is not fivefold. Let me tell you in the original language how it would read. Okay? It's it's. Uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd hyphen teachers. Shepherd teachers. It's one person. A pastor is a shepherd teacher. He's a pastor teacher. He's a, uh, an elder teacher. Elders, pastors must be able to teach. So it's those two that are, that are actually one. And he says, but he gave us the shepherds, these pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to do the ministry himself. Not to get all the praises for himself. But give it away. He says, for, and, and what does it do when you equip others, the, the, the body? And he's not referring to the hiring of other shepherds or other pastors or other staff. He's referring to the body, the church. What does it do when he equips them? It's, what, what's the purpose? For the building up of the body of Christ. When a shepherd leader does it all himself, he's not building the church. Oh, on the surface it looks wonderful. Look what our pastor can do. I mean, he is wonderful. Look, he did this, he did that, he came to my house, he drank my tea, he blah, 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 and they go on and on. No, no, but you're not, you're not, you're not building up the body. Until we all, you want to keep doing it until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Everybody gets to see how everybody fits into the body. And the knowledge of the Son of God. And to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and, the, and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Every one of you 
is, is given by God to the church. You're part of the church. You're in his family. And you are equipped. God has given you certain gifts, certain abilities that nobody else has just like you. And there is a place for you to serve. And when the whole church comes together by every joint with which it is equipped, each part is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body grows itself. The health of a church comes from the people who are serving the Lord in their sphere, whatever their ministry is. The pastor is just encouraging, cheerleading, clapping, applauding, training where training is needed, doing those things, but he's not getting in the way. This is Solomon. This is Solomon. In his great wisdom, it enabled him to devise plans based upon needs and then recruit and train and release the people to meet those needs. This is what we as a church want to practice. This is something very positive that we can take from Solomon's life and, and apply to our lives. And by the way, I don't care what your level, what your leadership is over. Leadership is not a title in the sense that you become a leader because you have a title, okay? Title, a little tag that you wear that has a, I'm the executive this, I'm the, titles don't make you a leader. It just doesn't. Now that, that goes against what the world teaches. But the title itself is not why you're the leader. You want to know if you're a leader or not, look at your organization, look at your, look at, at the people under you. How many of them are truly following? How many of them follow you because you wear a tag, but if the tag wasn't there, they wouldn't follow you? You're not the leader. You might have a custodian in your organization who has a whole lot more leadership than you do. People just want to hang out with him or her. They, 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 they grow, they glean from that individual. So leadership is not about a title. And Solomon, even though he was king, he had great wisdom and he used it wisely. He had, in the early days, what I call godly wisdom. God blessed not just him, but God blessed Israel and Judah because of that wisdom. Now, uh, churches don't need superheroes. They need an army of ordinary people who believe in a supernatural God. We don't need superhuman people. We need super God. Amen? And with faith alone, ordinary people can do great things for God. So, number, look, look if you will, it says, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. I just want to focus in on this for a second. Uh, actually, Azariah was the son of Ahimaz. So that's, a, that's, not, that's not accurate. You say, oh, did the Bible really mess up here? No, it didn't. Because in the Old Testament, when it says son of, it also means descendant of. So it's actually, when it reads, Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest, it really means uh, Azariah, the descendant of Zadok, the priest. Zadok would have been his grandfather. His father, as I said, was Ahimaaz. So it's interesting how that works. Now, in David's roster of officials who served in his kingdom, 
the army commander always came first. Let me just write it down if you will, but first, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18. 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equality to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, uh, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. So he lists the army commanders ahead of the priests, not Solomon. Solomon lists the priest in front of the army commander. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, number uh, Verse 3, Ahilareth and Ahijah. I wish you guys had to say these names. Man, this is, this, this is really tough coming out of Easter weekend, let me tell you. <laughs> the son of Shisha, or Shisha, were secretaries. He and Ahijah were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, Ahilad, Ahil, I'm sorry, Ahilad was recorder. Uh, now, that recorder was more than, don't just think of somebody who's, you know, taking notes, a stenograph. It, it's actually speaking of somebody who's high up in an organization, really high up. Uh, so, very important person, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad. Uh, verse 4, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. You might be wondering what's going on here. Uh, Abiathar is mentioned as a priest under Solomon's reign. Wait a minute. If we were to go back and look, it was Adonijah, the son of David, who tried to steal the throne while David was still alive. He was barely hanging on, but he was alive. David was so disconnected from the political system of his own nation, he didn't know that his son, Adonijah, was trying to replace him on the throne. He, and so when it all played out, uh, Solomon, uh, David said, no, Solomon will be king. And they had the big fanfare, and Solomon became king. And one of the first things Solomon did was he called, <laughs> interestingly, he calls Abiathar in. And he said, uh, you will no longer practice the priesthood. You need to go ahead and return to your home and live out your days. Then he said this, you should die for what you did. Why? What did he do? Uh, he supported Adonijah. This is David's longtime friend who betrayed David and wanted to replace David with his son Adonijah. Why? Set up a puppet government that he could run. And so Solomon dealt directly with the priest. And he said, you'll never practice it again. Now, so why here in chapter 4 does it say that uh, Zadok and Abiathar were priests? Because um, interestingly enough, he no longer is serving in the priesthood. But the title of priest was not taken from him. So it was a forced retirement. Uh, Solomon didn't destroy him and didn't ruin his name as a priest, the title priest, but you're not a practicing priest. You're not to minister to anyone in my kingdom. And so that's why he's listed, because he still is a priest, okay? Still living. Now, verse 
5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Uh, Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and, kings, and the king's friend. Abish, uh, Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, uh, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. By the way, that's not forced labor in the sense of slavery. It's actually an enlisted labor. It's a conscription, okay? So those who uh, are, are part of the labor force, uh, because they enlisted, somebody has to oversee that group, and that's, that's what we're talking about. So Solomon's government structure was much like that in modern nations, honestly. If you think about it, you know, a president comes in in the United States of America, and he selects his cabinet. Well, that's what Solomon did, okay? He selected his cabinet. But one of the things that we learn about Solomon as we read this and other passages that we're going to see here in the next, uh, even tonight and in the future, is where it describes his accomplishments. Uh, it, we learn that it's, it's, he accomplished much, part of the reason, because he was a great organizer. I mean, think about it. He becomes king and he lays out all these positions based on what he felt led to do for the nation. And so he brought people in who could help him get there. And that's good leadership, and he's, he was an organizational guy, strong in organization. Uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because God is a God of great design. Amen? Interestingly, this came out this week. I was listening. You ever listen to the world and everything in it? You need to do that. It's a podcast. The world and everything in it. You start listening to that, you'll stop listening to all the other news sources. And you probably should stop. The world and everything in it is a Christian-based, biblical uh, perspective on current events. They do not care to build up a particular person or to tear down another person. They call it the way it is. And if you listen to them, you'll find out real quick that our president is failing. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I had to inform you of that. I'm glad I informed you of that. But, but never do they treat him in, in a negative or derogative way. They show respect to the office of president, and when he does get something right, they speak to it. Something you'll never hear on Fox News. I'm just telling you, it's, it's a biblical worldview. The world and everything in it. They even have, it comes from the World Magazine. You've heard of the World Magazine? You ought to subscribe. If, if you don't have podcasts, subscribe to World Magazine. And listen, because I'm telling you, it's, it's good stuff. And so this week, they came out, and they, they talked about the fact that back when Bill Clinton was president, he had a press conference and made this big announcement, and he was truthful. I, I know that's hard to, he was truthful about it. And he, he actually said, we, uh, our scientists have literally uncovered a genome. They, they now have... The, the pathway and the, the, the makeup, the puzzle uh, resolved regarding DNA. Now, they still have work to do, he said, but they, they, it's unbelievable. Uh, and, and so then they bring it full force forward, and they said, 
And now they literally, of one human being's DNA, they have completed the entire genome. They have it all spelled out. They have taken all the pieces of a human's DNA and they have it, all the pieces are there and they all fit. And it's because of the science and the technology that we have today that they were able to do that. They even had to correct some things that back when Clinton was president that they thought they had right and they had wrong. But the, in other words, they've completed it. So here's the point. The point is, for the longest time, they only had 90% of the DNA figured out of a genome. And, and, and that other 10% represented like another 100 billion pieces that are missing. And so that was back when Clinton was president. All right, so they come a long way. While those pieces were missing or didn't fit, they couldn't make it work, the science community came out and said, they called them junk DNA. This is the leftovers of evolution. That's why they don't fit. It's the, it's the trail of pieces that don't fit into DNA now, and it's just a trail of, and they call it literally junk DNA. Well, guess what? Recently, all the junk fit perfectly. Why? Because our God is a God of design. Everything fits. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's just fabulous. Now, what they do with that knowledge concerns me, but at least we see in this story, it points back to creation. It points to God as our designer. Amen? We know that to be true. The world doesn't. So listen to the world and everything in it. You won't regret it. It'll, it'll bless you. Okay, uh, verse 7, Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provisions for one month in the year. So this is good organization. He, he, he divided uh, all of Israel into 12 districts. Immediately, you want to think tribes, right? The 12 tribes. No, he did not. He, he, he broke it up geographically differently than the tribes. Each of these, each of these leaders of a tribe, each of these leaders uh, was to provide for the king, for his family, for all the servants of his family, and for the royal court. They were to provide one month worth of food. Twelve different people. You work all 12 months for one month that you provide the food for the king and all, the, all of his people, okay? Pretty, pretty sharp guy. And when you see how much food we're talking about, it's going to make sense to you, okay? Uh, it might sound like a pretty cushy job, you know? Wow, you know, work really one month of a year. That's pretty cool. Now, when you remember that he had 300 wives and 700 concubines, and they all had servants. And they all had children. They all, I mean, the whole group was like a city of Vero Beach. I mean, really unbelievable when you think about it. Not, not, that's, that's an exaggeration, but still, a lot of folks. So let's take a look at this. This is really interesting. Verse 8, these were their names. These were the, the 12, okay? Ben-Hur, oh, there we go, Ben-Hur. He's in the Bible. Okay. What's that? <laughs> in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, 
and then Ben Decker in Makaz, uh, Shalabim, uh, Beth Shemesh, and Elabeth Hanan, Ben Hest, and Arubath, to him belongs Soka and the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab and all the uh, and all Naphath Dor, he had Taph. I mean, I'm going to skip over all these. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like wearing down just reading them. You get the picture. These are the important people, okay? But now we go down. Let's just move down to verse. Uh, uh, well, yeah. Uh, let, well, before we go there, well, yeah, it says in 19, and there was one governor who was over the land. So each of these 12 had a governor, and that person oversaw that particular geographical district. So you might think the officers of these districts would have been divided by tribe. They, they're not. Uh, it's important that we understand that. Uh, that in itself would be a breakaway from the traditions of the Jews. Uh, Solomon applied new ways of doing things. He was not afraid to do things a little differently. Now, those of you who you're wired to not like change, well, you just don't. Um, some people in the room, they love change so much, they would make you try to, they would try to convince you it's a spiritual gift. Okay? There's others of you who repel change. You don't even want to hear the idea. It might be a home run idea. You're like, no, it's not about the idea, it's about the change. Don't change anything. And and here's you you would been you would have been frustrated under Solomon because he was willing to do things a little differently in order to move the nation further, to excel, to be more efficient, and that's what he did. Now, I'm not one who wants to see everything change. I don't, I don't agree with that. I do think there are times that we can uh, try new things, and, but here, understand this. I tell the staff all the time, um, let's try it. See, I don't believe that when you try something new and it fails, that that means that you are a flop as a leader or as a team of leaders. It means that you tried something. That's all it means. And you learn. Either you learn that it's great or you learn that it's not so great. On lesser things, it's okay to try some things. On big things, you better make sure that it's the right thing before you do it, right? Make sense? Well, Solomon was that kind of a person, a lot more than, than any of us. But anyway... Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms. I'm sorry, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So this is like a summary of Israel and Judah under Solomon's reign. It was a utopian time. It was a gold, uh, you know, a gold period, an era of, of great advancement, an area, a time of great accomplishment. And, and, and so this is why Judah and Israel were happy, okay? Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. Basically, the entire, what we would say, is the holy land. Uh, he had the whole thing, and everybody was following him. Uh, he was not a warrior. Uh, he was not a war general. 
his father David was. His father David knew what war was. Remember as a young boy going up against Goliath from Gath? Uh, his father knew what war was and could handle that. But Solomon had warriors in his army. He allowed them to do their job. He stayed out of the way. So what was the secret to his success? Why, if he was not a great warrior, why is he advancing and why are other nations not coming in upon him? And here's why. Because this is also attributed to David. He was preceded by his father David, who because he was a great warrior and influence on the field of battle, other nations stopped trying to attack for a season of time. So that's true of any president in our country. You inherit good and bad from the president before you, right? And so that's what Solomon is living off of. That's, what, that's part of this golden era is. It's, it's, it's the follow-up of a king who really went to battle for his people and, and solidified peace, okay? So we just need to give, make a contribution back to David on that. That's really what it's about. Verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day. Here we go now. You're wondering why do you need a leader over a district, 12 districts, and they only give to the king the food and, that his family needs for one month. Here it is. Solomon's provision, not for the month, for one day out of the 30 days. For one day of the 30 days, he needed, okay, hang on, buckle up, Erling. Okay, 30 cores of fine flour. Let me tell you how much that is for one day. That's 55 gallons of flour for one day. And you got to have 55 gallons show up every day for 30 days. Now, do you think it takes a year to prepare for the month that you're going to serve the king? Okay, and 60 cores of meal. That's 110 gallons of meal. 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle every day. Okay, let me tell you what that is. Translation, that's 10 Kobe beef cows, and that's 20 prime choice beef cows every day. And 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl every single day day. You are literally feeding a city <laughs> for a month. I don't know about you. Uh, somebody tried to do the math on this and, and understanding food and, and the, the distribution of food. They said that would feed 15 to 30,000 people for the day. For the day. Okay? So now the, the thing is, understand, He's not, this is not in the scripture to try and get us to, under, to, to think, oh, look at how much food these people ate. These people, they're just stuffing themselves. It's not what it's about. It's about the level of era, the golden era, that God was blessing Israel in such a marvelous way because of the covenants going all the way back to Abraham. This is also, this is also a picture here in this chapter 
of an, it's an illusion, not illusion, illusion to the millennial reign of Christ when he comes for a thousand years, a physical reign of Jesus, that there will be that kind of peace on the earth. So I think Micah is the prophet who actually spoke of that. So the point is not to show how much they had, but to show the opulence, to show the, the great blessing, the prosperity that God provided. Why? Because uh, Solomon came to God, when God came to Solomon, rather, he didn't ask for all the stuff. He said, I just want wisdom and discernment to lead your people well. And so God said, because you didn't ask for physical things, material goods and money, I'm going to give you the wisdom and discernment that you desire more than any man on the earth's ever had. You'll be wiser than anybody who's ever lived. And I'm going to go ahead and bless you with M&Ms, money and material goods. And that's what God did. Now, that is not a license for us to pray that same prayer. Lord, just give me wisdom and discernment. And inside you're going, man, I could use the M&Ms. No, uh, that God's not into that. That's not what it's about. Okay, this is a picture of the future. And so God is just giving us an allusion to that. Verse 24, For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, all over the kings of the west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. That again, some of it is attributed to David. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. That's interesting, that phraseology there. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. We'll come back to that. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. Now, let me tell you, that's, that's inaccurate. That This is a misprint. In the Old Testament text, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran, um, they said, now we're going to have a scroll that's 900 years, written 900 years earlier than the scrolls that we currently have. Okay, they discovered these. When was it they discovered? Like 1950 or something? 40s? Okay, thank you. So, uh, we'll, we'll see all the discrepancies. Well, when they looked at that original text 900 years earlier, what they discovered? Less than 1% uh, error or spelling, grammatical issues out of the entire Old Testament. You think about that. Well, this is one of those rare things. Because, okay, let me tell you why. Write down, if you will, next to that passage in verse 26, write 2 Chronicles 9.25. That is actually a parallel passage to this passage. 2 Chronicles 9.25. And it shows 4,000 stalls for horses, not 40,000. And that would make sense, and that's what it is. So even though the ESV does not correct it because it was in the original text as 40,000, but, that's, but then again, they also didn't correct, uh, try to correct uh, the Chronicles passage. Okay? So, uh, Solomon also had 44,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Okay? Um, let's keep moving here. Um, verse 27, And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon... 
We're talking about those leaders over the districts. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. So that is a, just a, a, a huge amount of food that you're going to provide for a whole month for the king and for everything associated with the king. Uh, verse 25 again, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Micah prophesied of the future millennial reign when Christ would return for a thousand years. And so let me read it for you. Take your Bible, turn to Micah 4, 1 through 5 we'll read. Okay, five verses. Micah 4, 1 through 5. Micah is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Four, one through, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, four, one through five. He's giving a, a, a prophecy concerning the millennial reign of Christ. And he says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into, the, into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. There's the passage that we find here in uh, 1 Kings. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So that is a prophecy about future events, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, even though events have not even occurred in our day yet, speaking of the return of Christ, yet in the Old Testament we see types, we see allusions to or pictures of the future. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was about the law. In the New Testament, it's about the substance. The law would have been a shadow, a foretelling of Christ's coming. He was the fulfillment of the law, okay? And so we see this same thing happening here. That's why we're dealing with this. If only Solomon followed God's word uh, regarding his horses and his wives, the way he followed God and other things. In Deuteronomy, let me just say to you, in Deuteronomy... Uh, chapter 17, verse 14. Write it down. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed, this is God before they ever asked for a king, knowing that they, that they were going to ask. He didn't want them to. God didn't want them to, to cry out for a king so they could be like other nations. He wanted to raise up his own king. Uh, he was the king. 
and they rejected him. So here it says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to turn, return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, here it is, last verse there. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Well, Solomon acquired horses, wives, and silver and gold. Now, why did God look past that? Because this is a picture of a future kingdom that Christ will rule. So even though Solomon is not walking obediently in all of God's word, uh, God is still blessing in this situation, each according to his duty. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon preached a sermon on that one little passage, each according to his duty. And he focuses on the idea that we have a charge to fulfill in the kingdom of God, not just preachers. Every member of the body of Christ is charged and we should be diligent to perform what we are charged to do, and we should be expectant in being supplied by God for the things that He's called us to do. Where God guides, God will provide, okay? That's why on TV you'd see these ministries, uh, I don't watch any of them at all, but back you know, in the 80s and 90s it was so popular, these guys had come on, and honestly, a lot of them were charlatans and they would just work people over, fleece people on TV for money, right? Oh, if you don't give, we're going to have to close the doors on this ministry. We're down to the final week. If we don't have enough money, we're not going to be able to be on live next week. Blah, 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 okay? Where God guides, God provides. And I'm not saying that even God's, that God's uh, uh, plans mean that you'll never go through difficult days. We're going to see that again on Sunday as the Apostle Paul, who is doing the Lord's work on the first missionary journey with Barnabas, yet he faces incredible trial and setback on a regular basis. So don't get the wrong idea here. But here's what we know. If the ministry is yours, it will die because it doesn't really live. But if the ministry is the Lord's, it will thrive even when you don't know where the next dollar is going to come from. God will use it. God will make it work. Amen? I am so thankful to say to you tonight as a church family that uh, we are not in danger of closing the doors because we don't have any doors. <laughs> We also don't fear not being able to meet next week. Uh, understand that uh, God has been so gracious and so good to us as a church family. And we are not in a financial difficult place. Thankful to God for that. Where God guides, God provides. Uh, Spurgeon said, in Solomon's court, all his officers had a service to carry out, every man according to his charge. It is exactly so in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are truly his, he has called us to some work or office. 
and He wills us to discharge that office diligently. We are not to be gentlemen at ease, but men at arms. Not loiters, but laborers. Not glittering spangless, spangless, but burning and shining lights. So that's good stuff. Verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, uh, Heman, Kalkol, Darda, the sons of Mehol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So we're talking about a man who on the earth, the wisest man, that's Solomon, the wisest. Nobody on this earth, before or after, will be wiser than Solomon because God granted him something that nobody, nobody else has. Okay, In the glory years of Solomon's kingdom, he used this great wisdom that God gave him for God's purposes. Sadly, he didn't continue to the very end using God's wisdom. He began to rely on human wisdom. Godly wisdom is you might be a very wise person, but you still are utterly dependent upon God. A wise person who still falls to their knee before God and begs God for help. That's a person using godly wisdom the right way. But you might be a wise person who stops falling to your knee and who just begins to rely on the great wisdom that you have. Now you're functioning out of human wisdom. He had more human wisdom than anybody else on the earth. And that's how he ended. And it literally destroyed the nation of Israel. It took them in the wrong direction under his leadership. You know, you can go all of your life and be faithful to God, trusting in, relying upon, adhering to God. And God just do his wonderful work using you like a, like a tool in his hand, okay? And then towards the end, throw it all away because you rely upon your own understanding, your own wisdom. We've, we've got a situation in our community and a, a one of the community spiritual leaders who has done just that, has turned away uh, in, in his zenith, what should be his final days, and he's turned from the Lord. And uh, we need to be praying. You don't need to know who it is. Just be praying for them that God would open the eyes of those who Satan has blinded. It's, isn't it, you, you can relate to this, people who have such wisdom and understanding that now they're making decisions that are so unwise, and you're like, I know they know better. They're so sharp. They're so smart. Why are they doing that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed those matters that those who think they're wise, they become fools. If you trust in human wisdom. So while we celebrate the wisdom that God gave Solomon for the purposes of God, when he started doing things on his own for his own purpose, it went south quick. Okay? Um, 
Turn, turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 11. How are we doing on time? 7.35, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up, but let me, let me share this with you. I didn't get near as far as I wanted to. In fact, I'll probably skip over this. I'll, I'll just tell you what it's about. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 11. If you want to see the fallout of a great king who God blessed beyond all others, and in the end he turned into using everything for his own gain, and he started thinking out of his own wisdom instead of the Lord's. This is the picture right here. This is the wrap-up of Solomon's life. Believe me, it's ugly. It's ugly. First, yeah, First Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, let's go back to our text and finish this up. Verse 31, And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He became prominent and famous uh, among all kings. Uh, and again, this is a great promise of God that's being, that's being described in, in, in Deuteronomy. Write this down. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6. And, and, and then also verse 10. Let me read it for you. This is, what was, this is what God said would happen to Israel. And it happened under Solomon. Okay, So the, 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 it was the fulfillment in a shadow sense of, the, of that prophecy. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, verse 10, and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Well, that's what Solomon and his people experienced. Okay. Now, verse 32 in our text, he also get, spoke 3,000 proverbs. Just try to write one proverb. Just give that a shot. He wrote 3,000. And his songs were 1,005. So that's a pretty accurate number, 1,005. Uh, how many of you can write a song? Um, I mean one that people want to actually hear. Okay. Uh, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So what a great wisdom. He composed many songs, but few psalms in the sense that David was the sweet psalmist, right? Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. Um, interestingly, the Jews see that as the cedar would be the highest of all uh, botanical plants and the hyssop would be at the lowest. So it's really just a picture, a phrase saying, that he was all comprehensive in his knowledge and in his ability to communicate about botany. Uh, what a great guy, huh? You really understood it. He's like a Scott Walker. <laughs> Scott is our, he's our resident uh, uh, botanist. Uh, he, he, if you want to see and know about any plant, whatever, just speak to Scott Walker and he will tell you. And he gets it honest, his father, I know, I, I know his father well, his father can do the same thing. So he, he, he learned that from his dad. But uh, God also blessed him with great understanding. Uh, so that, that basically is the chapter. It was simply giving us a picture of the state of Israel and Judah under Solomon's reign, an overview of it. And so what's the practical takeaway for us? That when we obey the Lord, God is in charge.
when we cease to obey the Lord, we are in charge. And the outcomes of those two scenarios are drastically different. Drastically. Uh, over in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, said this, And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Go down to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So the wisest man on the earth came to the conclusion that life, if you apply human wisdom, it ends up in, as vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Many people have done that. My heart still gilding me with wisdom, or gilded, gilding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and, and uh, parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools uh, from, which to, uh, from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my... He goes on and on. All these things he did. You know what he learned in the end? If you want to read Ecclesiastes, he learned that one person starts out uh, with great wisdom, another starts out stupid, making foolish decisions, and they both end up foolish if you apply all your life human wisdom. Having human wisdom does not put you ahead of the person who doesn't in the end. Human wisdom will, at the end of your life, cause you not to surrender everything to God. You didn't do it your whole life, you won't do it now. If human wisdom is what you live by, it's about you, not about God. So in the end, you're as foolish as a person who doesn't have a whole lot of intelligence. That's what Solomon learned. But when he practiced godly wisdom, when you and I walk in godly wisdom, God blesses. And you'll never regret the days that you walked in godly wisdom. Amen? Father, tonight we thank you for your goodness. You are such a good God. Goodness has the, the sense of justice in it. That you can't really be good if justice isn't at the center of everything you think of and everything you do. And that's our God. Never have you made a mistake. Never have you given adjudication uh, inaccurately. The, the scripture tells us that the judge of the universe must do right. If he doesn't do right, he's no longer God. He's not a God to be followed. But that's never happened. It never will happen. And so tonight, Lord, we turn to the God who has all wisdom. We ask you, Lord, to remind us to stay on our knees, to humble up, to lean into you. Even if we have a high aptitude, maybe we test it out in the ACT or the SAT score. It doesn't matter. We still need to rely totally upon you. 
I pray, Lord, that every person here tonight would consider that and they would walk in wisdom. And if we don't have a lot of wisdom, if we walk in godly wisdom, if we take the Word of God and apply it, we have great wisdom. <laughs> and we just give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you this evening.